the church are entering into a season called, uh, well, it, it, traditionally in the church, it's called Lent. We haven't always practiced Lent. It's not necessarily a, a, a practice of our Baptist tradition, but there's something about it that I want us to pay attention to, that, that even though it's not a, a, a prescribed season in the Bible, that there's something beneficial for us dedicating a season of our lives to thinking on the death and resurrection of Christ, to think on our preparation, the preparation of our heart in coming to Easter. See, I think in, in many ways, Easter comes and goes like many other holidays and many other things in our lives. And, and though we value and love Easter, uh, it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't hold the weight that I believe it should in our lives because it just becomes one more thing in the busyness of, of life. The reality is that, 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 that Easter carries much meaning for all of us, and I, I'm not demeaning that in, 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 in looking into your heart and saying you don't value Easter. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we would benefit from creating space to prepare our hearts so that Easter doesn't just come one day and then is gone the next. Now, quick side note, on Thursday evening of the week of Easter, oftentimes called Holy Week, there will be a special service here in the sanctuary at 7 p.m., and it's going to, we're calling it the Service of Shadows, and it's a service where we have time to reflectively, contemplatively draw near to Jesus as he journeys closer and closer to the cross. So I hope you'll join us. It's not a long service. It'll be probably just under an hour even, but it's meant to be a service that helps prepare your heart for the weekend around the resurrection, and so uh, join us for that. Now, uh, as I mentioned, as we approach Easter, there's some things that I want us to, I want to challenge us as a church to consider. That, that, it, that our lives are fragile. Not just our human lives, but the soul that, that, that is your life and your being is very fragile. And as much as we want to build one another up, encourage one another, point to the good in one another, there comes a time where we also have to recognize the brokenness that is in each and every one of us. And so I, I hope you'll join with me over these next four weeks. Make it a point to be here as we explore the, the Bible together over these next four weeks in preparation for joining our voices on Resurrection Sunday morning, praising God, glorifying him that he has defeated death and risen to life so that all of us might rise to life with him. This week we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, and it's going to be a familiar passage to you because we preached on it, we, we spent time in it last week. This week we're going, to follow, uh, we're going to pay attention to the verses that are just following our passage from last week, but uh, if you would, open to Mark chapter 8 and allow me to read for us the verses from 27 to 33. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to that. There's Bibles in the, the pew, or the, the seat in front of you. Uh, you can open it in your app. You can read it on the screen. There's many ways for us to read the Word of God together this morning. So let me read for us from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, sorry. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. 
and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, the verses we're going to be studying and expositing, we're going to be drawing the truth of the Scriptures out uh, in this week, will follow on the heels of the verses we looked at last week, right? You may have recognized that question that, that Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? If that was last week's crucial question, who do you say that Jesus is? Then this week's crucial question is why must the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected by the Sanhedrin, be killed, and three days later rise again to life? In other words, why was it necessary for Jesus to die? Now, this is a complicated question, right? This is not some simple question where we just look at a couple verses and it gives us our answer. Wading through this question will feel like your mind and your heart are wading through thick mud and you're just trudging along. It, it, it's a, it has many various theological layers and, and connections. It's complicated. And so bear with me, right? This morning's going to be a fun little adventure together. I, I hope that you keep your thinking cap on, follow along, stay with me, keep your Bibles open. We're going to go on a little journey together. And so uh, it, as hard as this question is, and as much as we're going to be looking at the Scriptures together this morning, the thing I want you to keep in mind is it is not possible for you to understand and answer that question apart from God's help. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, uh, unless our lives have been regenerated by God, unless his spirit is at work in us, then the, the scales of sin over our eyes will not be removed. We, we will not make sense of this question unless God does his work of opening our hearts and minds and, and, and the eyes of our hearts to what he has declared, what he has done, and it will just be foolishness. So I think it's important that as we approach this question, as we approach this text in Mark chapter 8, that we specifically ask God for his spirit to lead us in looking at this text. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would guide us and enlighten us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would, would bring to mind your word that, that we've desired to, to eat and to, to see inscribed on our hearts. Help us to make sense of what you are saying to your disciples in Mark chapter 8. Help us to understand why it is necessary that the Son of Man must die and rise again. Lord, we know that we can't we can't make sense of this. We can't rationalize it apart from your work in our lives. So, Lord, have your way in us. Have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be thinking a little bit like, Pastor Dan, you're crazy. Did you just read that text yourself? It doesn't pose a question. Jesus isn't asking a question to his disciples. Well, the question isn't Jesus' question. It's really a question that, that I think we would all ask. 
Well, why is it necessary, right? I mean, typically, we treat the, 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 the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ as if you, you know, are eating a meal. You don't, you don't really ask the questions of why does this food nourish my soul? You just believe that it does nourish your, or sorry, not your soul, your body. You just believe that it does nourish your body. In some ways, we in the church, we've just come to believe that Jesus' death and resurrection regenerates our soul. We don't always ask those deeper questions, why does it regenerate our soul? Why does it bring us life? Why does it give us forgiveness? And so when Jesus says it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and die and be raised to life, I think we need to answer, or we need to treat this text like a small child treats a question that they have that they need an answer to. But why? Well, it's, you know, because of this. Yeah, but why? Well, because of this. Well, yeah, but why? Right, I mean, have you, you've seen that small child asking that question, but why, but why, but why? You know, I, I used to be masterful about this type of question, this way of beating a question into the ground and getting the answers I needed. I, I think it's masterful. My parents called it annoying. I mean, you decide. Here, I mean, after all these years, this is the benefit of asking a question like that. Why must the Son of Man suffer at the hands of Jewish rulers and die? Well, because the Bible says so. Well, why? Well, because the, the, the Jewish tradition or the, 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 the sacrificial system says that it's necessary. Yeah, but why? Let's keep asking that question together this morning as we explore the text. See, here in Mark chapter 8, there's a a three-letter Greek word that's translated as must. The Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again to life. But the word is dei, D-E-I, if we were to kind of just take it completely from the Greek into the English and, and, and butcher it that way. But it has a bit more oomph in the Greek than we, that we've treated with must, Right? Well, you must do a load of laundry, or you must make dinner for your family, or, or you must get your taxes done by April 15th, right? All of these things are important, but they're not necessary, right? You can file for an extension on your taxes. You can order out Boston Market for dinner. You can wear that pair of pants one more day, just as you did the day before, right? It's not necessary, but it's important, right? In Mark 8, Jesus' point is not to say that it's just important for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to die and to rise to life. He's saying it's necessary. It's necessary. There's, there's no alternative option. There's no like, you know, you could do this or we could do that. There's no multiple choice here. There are not many different paths to the top of the mountain. There's one, Right? If Jesus is, as he claims he is in, in John chapter 14, the way, the truth, and the life, and, and if, he's, if it's really true that no one comes to the Father except through him, then his suffering and his death and his resurrection are the only way that we have to peace with God and a world restored to being as God intended it to be. See, this is what we believe as Christians that Jesus is who he says he is, that it's necessary for him to do things that only he can do, and that in accomplishing this work, he brings about what God intended for this world. But church, I'm going to 
I'm going to ask you to keep your thinking caps on. Stay with me. Don't, don't check out on me just yet. See, the issue of sin and salvation and the exclusivity of Christianity are like an onion with many layers. They're all related. They're all connected. One, you, you can't have one without the other, right? We can't answer uh, this question without exploring what we believe about God. We can't answer the question of why is it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and rise to life without exploring what we believe about man's relationship to God. Or or we can't answer our question today without keeping in mind the doctrine of of sin or, or, or God's purposes for his law. See, all that's connected in our understanding of one layer helps us understand another layer in the process of asking, why was it necessary? Why, why is the cross necessary? So where do we begin? I think we begin with God himself. We start with God. To understand what's broken, we need to understand who God is and what he's done in creating mankind. See, God is wholly different in nature from you and I. I mean, if, if I try to get you to imagine this person that I met on the street, you kind of have a ballpark. Well, I mean, they're a human being, right? I know that they've, they've got a heart, a heartbeat. They've, they, they breathe air, right? You, you know some generalities. You start to pick up. You can picture what a person looks like. But when it comes to God, he's completely different than us. His nature is wholly different than our nature, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 to 25, that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, God created us. God gave us the breath of life. And yet still, he does not exist like you and I do. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He doesn't doesn't require a, a building like this to be in. In other words, God is holy. You've heard that word, right? We use that word in church, and sometimes I think we, we don't necessarily think about what it what it is, what it means. We think it's religiously superior, but it actually means that God is set apart from us. His nature is different from ours. This is just kind of skimming the surface of the church's doctrine of God, but it's important for us to understand for later on that God is wholly different from us. W-H-O-L-L-Y. I hope I spelled that right. So if God is set apart from humanity as our creator, and and, and if he's set apart from humanity as the life giver to humanity, who doesn't need us but wants us, then who are we in light of God? Who are we in, in light of him? Not like who are we separate from God, but if he is the creator, the one who gives life, then who are we in light of him, our creator? Well, simply put, mankind is created in the image of God. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we're told that God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. So you, me, 
Those inside the church, those outside the church, every human being on this planet, past, present, and future, we've all been created in the image of God. See, we have this piece of technology in the building that's uh, is, is, it's there to help keep us safe in case of a fire. And it's basically this little laser that sends this beam out from it and is meant to connect with a mirror on the other side of the room. Now, this is not another beam that is communicating back and forth. The laser beam is sent out, is intended to hit the mirror and reflect directly back to it. In other words, kind of make it believe that there's this ongoing circuit of communication back and forth, a perfect reflection of that laser. Now, what happens if for some reason that laser breaks or, or its position shifts and it no longer hits that mirror? Well, the image doesn't reflect back to it, right? It doesn't come back. It's, it, it's broken. It, it's it. it it's an error. There's a mistake. There's a miscommunication. Something is broken. And, and so, in case of a fire, if that's the case, we don't know that we need help. We need help from somewhere outside. We can't communicate with the fire department. We can't get the help we need. See, when God created us in his image, he sent his image to mankind and created us in such a way that we were like that mirror sending the character of God right back to him, reflecting this perfect being right back to God. But let me ask you something. If an image is something that's visible, right? If you can see that laser beam, if you can, if you can, if um, looking at an image, the image is visible, well, then how can we know what God looks like? How can we know what image we're supposed to reflect back to God? Well, the only way is if God reveals himself to us, if he sends that image out, right? If he, if, if he reveals himself to his creation. And so he does with giving his people the law. And even more so in sending his son, Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 17 to 18, we're told, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. In other words, God gave us the law, but when that didn't work, he sends his son, who's a more perfect image of God, who not only obeys the law, but fulfills the law. And in fulfilling the law, gives us this picture of the image of God. Why does he do this? Why does God give us his law? Why does he send his son Jesus? Because it's in the law which Jesus fulfills that we come to know the image of God. And it's in our, in our obedience to the law that we reflect the image of God back to him. Now I get it, that word obey and obeying God can sometimes rub people the wrong way in our day and age. But bear with me, because this is not some authoritarian way of saying, you must do what I say, and if not, you're in trouble. This is a good and perfect God sending his image out saying, this is what it looks like to be good and perfect. See, I think a mirror 
works in a similar way. When you hold something up to a mirror, your, your expectation is to see that exact reflection of the object in front of the mirror. But think about this for a moment. Think about how God sends his image out and how he intends for us to reflect his image directly back to him. No miscommunication, no misalignment, no error or crack or shattering in the mirror, that perfect reflection back to God. See, in the Gospels, when a lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him, hey, uh, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus tells him the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Well, have you ever asked yourself why God commands us to love him? Is God some egotistical maniac who, who, who selfishly just wants to be fed by the love of his creation? No. No, God doesn't command us to, 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 to love him just so we can feed some need in him. God eternally existed in form of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and within that trinity, he had everything he needed. So he didn't create us to satisfy some need to be loved. The reason we're commanded to love God as his image bearers is because God is love. We're taught in 1 John 4, 8, that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love love. So if God is love, then we too are intended to be love by by being obedient to God and and are being as God intended us to be. In other words, if God says, hey, I want you to be like me, when we can obey and walk with God, we are manifesting the very best image of what it means to love because we are manifesting, we're, we're exhibiting the character of God. When the Bible teaches us not to lie, it's because God can't lie. And we're meant to be like him. When, when the Bible teaches us not to covet what we don't have, it's because coveting things is not in God's nature. He doesn't look at his creation and say, ooh, I wish I had that. He's got everything he needs. God has no need for anything from us or from this world. And so as God's image bearers, created in his image, it's always been God's will and intention that mankind would reflect back to him the perfection of his character. And that's what the purpose of the law is. The the, the purpose of the law and our obedience to it was meant to fulfill our calling as perfect image bearers of God. Theologian by the name of Millard Erickson once said this. He said, The law is something of a transcript of the nature of God. When we relate to it, whether positively or negatively, we're not relating to some impersonal document, some some dry legal code. We're not relating to some impersonal set of regulations of do's or don'ts. Rather, it's God Himself whom we're obeying or disobeying. And disobeying the law is serious, not because the law has some inherent value in it or dignity that must be preserved. In other words, we don't do it just for the sake of doing it and saying, hey, look, I did what God told me to do. But because disobeying it is actually an attack on the very nature of God. 
saying, I don't agree with who God is. Saying, I, I don't think God is truly who he says. I don't think he's good. I don't think he's perfect. I don't think he is love. I don't think he is true. Disobeying God is saying, God, I think there's a better option than you. I think there's a more perfect way to be than following you and being who you've called me to be. So when, Adam, or so when God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, he wasn't trying to control them and keep them under his thumb, but he was trying to keep them away from death, from the consequences of sin, from the knowledge of good and evil. God himself does not know death and evil. And so neither were we intended to have this knowledge which came to us through Adam and Eve's sin. Now, would they have obeyed God, they would be like God, not knowing evil and death, right? But that's, that's not what Satan tells them. Instead, they chose to disobey God, and their reflection of God was, was not just out of focus, it was broken. That laser beam was not just missing the mark a little bit and coming back crooked, it was completely out of alignment. It was sending an error code to the, the, safe, the fire safety system saying, broken, broken, can no longer operate. This relationship between God and man is broken and no longer works. And so, it was not just Adam and Eve that broke the communication of God's image but all of mankind. Paul teaches us in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. See, sin is something that has been passed down from generation to generation, much like our genetic traits. No matter how hard we try to work against it, you cannot fix Genetics. I can try to counteract my genetic hair loss by joining hair club for men, but it doesn't change me at some genetic or fundamental level. I'm still a man trying to cover up what, what's there. I, I could try to better my life by, by, by putting some, getting some plugs in there or wearing a toupee, but it just it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't change who I am. It may make things look different on the outside, hopefully look better, but I wonder if that would actually work, but, but it doesn't change who I am on a fundamental level. See, when we try to better our own lives by reading some self-help books or, 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 or working on something, trying harder, and doing it all without God's help, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. It's all cosmetic repair, right? It's all, it's all working on the outside, but really nothing changing on the inside. By the way, have you ever heard that statement, putting lipstick on a pig? I, I learned it this past year for the first time. It's this idea of trying to dress up something, but only on the, the exterior level, trying to make it appear better than it really is. Mankind is broken at a fundamental soul level, and the cost for our brokenness is death. No amount of cosmetic repairs on the outside change that. So we may be able to fool ourselves into thinking that, that we can keep sin at bay, that, oh, I've conquered that part of my life. That's never going to be a risk for me, or, or that's behind me now. We, we may think that, that, that we can fool others into thinking that we're better than we are, 
but it's, it's all cosmetic repair. See, sin entered the world through Adam, and through him death as well. A brokenness in which we have no hope of repair or restoration without some sort of outside help. We're all broken at a soul level by sin, and we all owe the same death, the same punishment, the same consequence, which according to Paul is death. But that still doesn't answer our question, does it? We're still asking, but why? But why was it necessary for Jesus to die? I get it. I, I don't, you don't have to convince me that there's something broken in me. But why was it necessary for Jesus to die? See, the answer to our question comes to us in what we believe is true about Jesus and what we believe is true about us as human beings. See, there's this term that theologians use from time to time uh, that, that is total depravity. And, and some of us, when we hear that term, total depravity, we believe that it means that mankind is scum. We're, we're dirt. We're, we're, we're food for worms. There's nothing good about us. But I don't, that's not what that word means. So what, what that word truly refers to is mankind's inability to get themselves out of their predicament brought about by sin. Right? Our total depravity means that there is no possible way for us to fix our situation in our own power, in our own effort. We are totally depraved. So a young child in school can't teach himself or herself to read. They, they can't find a way in themselves to, to teach themselves to read. They need a teacher, someone from outside themselves, to step in their world and teach them how to read. C.S. Lewis describes it as a man drowning in a river who can only be helped by another person with one foot on dry land. Although all too often, we're that person drowning in the river saying, no, no, it's good, I got it, I can do it, just let me, let me tread water a little bit longer, I think I can get my footing. Let me try one more time, Right? But we can't. We can't get out of that river without help. See, as human beings, all of us are incapable of paying the debt that saves us from our sin without God's help. We need God to atone for our sins. That's another word that we hear from time to time, this idea of atonement, atoning for our sins. It, it, it literally means in the Old Testament this idea of covering over so, so when, when there's a sin and you atone for it, you cover over it. So what God sees is the, the covering, not the sin itself, right? The sacrifice was meant to be that atonement that covered over our sin. So what God saw was a payment for our penalty or a payment for the debt we owed instead of the sin itself. And so they would sacrifice animals according to the law that would cover over their sin. And this is where our understanding of who Jesus is makes all the difference in the world. See, only one who knew no sin could suffer perfectly, die perfectly, and rise to life perfectly and share that free gift with us. O only God, who is untarnished by sin, could cover over our sin and make us holy and righteous like him. Think about this. I, I love my wife, and I, I would do anything for her, right? 
If God says, Dan, you need to be perfect for your wife so that you can cover over her sins, she's in trouble. Because no matter how, uh, no amens there. No matter how hard I try, I'm not perfect. I am not without sin. I'm blemished. Right? We need someone to cover over our sins who is perfect, who is unblemished, who knows no sin. But in order to represent mankind, Jesus has to be like one of us. He has to be human. He needs to be an appropriate sacrifice on our behalf. To pay human beings debt, he has to be human himself. And in order for Jesus to go where mankind could not, by his perfect obedience to the law, he had to be God. No no human being can perfectly obey the law. No one can perfectly reflect back the image of God to himself, but God himself. And so Paul tells us in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, in order for you and I to gain from Jesus' sacrifice, he needed to be a representative on our behalf. He needed to be a human and divine substitution. If Adam was a representative of mankind and through him sin and death entered mankind, it would be through a representative of mankind that the power and consequences of sin would be undone. One more place where Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 22. Uh, sorry, yeah, 21 to 22. Paul says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, for this to happen, Christ needed to march the path of the consequences of Adam's and our sin so that he might cover over our debt, that he might cover over the the consequences of our sin, our death, and that we would be made alive with him as he rose to life. Only Jesus could suffer perfectly. Only the Son of Man whom God had given authority over everything in heaven and on earth could die perfectly. And only Jesus, in rising to life, could be made alive again and no longer or sorry, could we be made alive again and no longer live under the curse of sin and death that's reigned since Adam? See, there's, there's a song that we sing from time to time in worship called Only a Holy God. I want to read some of the lyrics for us for a moment. Just listen to these lyrics. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him Father. Only a holy God, only my holy God. Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship a holy God. Why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die and rise to life? Because only a wholly different God could step into humanity, could bear the the consequences of our sin on the cross, 
could pay that price that we would never be able to pay on our own, but not just do so as God, but as a representative of mankind. So that as he rises to life, we not only die with him, but we rise to life with him. Only a holy God can make it possible. That's why Jesus had to suffer many things, to die and to rise to life. Church, we as a people are broken beyond human repair. No amount of education or behavioral therapy or human effort of any kind can fix what's broken deep down inside of us. All those things help, mind you. They help us in significant ways, but none of those options change us fundamentally at a soul level apart from a holy God. Any effort apart from God is just putting lipstick on a pig. Think about your own story. Have you ever spent time thinking about, really thinking about why you are the way you are? I mean, the, the good parts are easy to think of, right? But what about those things that you're not so proud of? What about those parts of you that you're embarrassed or ashamed of? Those parts that you just can't seem to overcome or fix. Those, those things in your life that make you feel like a broken record, no matter how many times you try to address them. I think we can all agree that something is broken in our souls, and we're going to keep on struggling until we can admit that there's really only one way to address that brokenness inside of us. So the good news is that Jesus has already come and accomplished this restorative work. At Easter time, when we read some of the scriptures and we hear Jesus declare from the cross, it is finished, he's declaring that what's broken needs no longer be broken. We can be restored to the person that God created us to be, our true selves in Christ. We can, we can reflect back to God perfectly, not because we're obedient to the law perfectly, but because we have the Son of God who has risen to life at work in us, reflecting back to his Father, the image of the Father. But that requires believing that it was necessary for Jesus to suffer on our behalf to die on our behalf, and to rise to new life on our behalf. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Church, it was necessary for Jesus, the Son of Man, to suffer and die and rise again so that by his obedience, it, our sins might be covered over, our disobedience might be covered over, that we might be made righteous, and God might give us life. So yeah, it was necessary for Jesus to suffer many things, to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, to be crucified, to die, and to rise again. 
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we don't take this topic lightly. And Lord, uh, the things that we've discussed today are, are way more uh, involved than, than what 35, 45 minutes can give us on a Sunday morning. But yet, Lord, you have spoken your word to us. You have revealed yourself to us. You have sent forth that image of yourself to this earth in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, there are those of us here this morning who who feel that brokenness, who think of themselves more as broken than they do as a child of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give those people boldness to believe that it was necessary for Jesus to die for them, to cover over their sin. Nothing they could do would, would, would fix what was broken there. But yet, Lord, also may they hear that message that 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 work of restoration is available to them through believing that it was necessary for Jesus, only a holy God, to die on their behalf. That as he rises to life, they too might have life and be restored to a relationship with God. Lord, in these coming weeks as we approach Easter, I pray that this understanding of our brokenness would not lead us to, the, to living in the gutters of life and thinking the worst of ourselves, but to give us an awareness of how deeply we need your work in our life, to restore us, to regenerate us to life, to enable us and empower us to walk by faith in you. And so, Lord, we praise you. We make much of your name. We give you thanks for sending your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.